Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing and expanding education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com slash starts. Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. Actually, you're not because I'm on holiday. So today you're going to be listening to The Argument, another podcast from New York Times Opinion. In this episode, my colleague Jane Coaston hosts a debate about the falling birth rate and whether you should worry that people are having fewer babies. By the way, I'm doing my part to counteract this trend with three kids and counting. All right, that's enough from me. Here's The Argument. Today on The Argument... What's the big deal about the falling birth rate? The U.S. Census reports over the last decade, the population grew at the slowest rate since the 1930s. The number of babies the average woman is expected to deliver in her lifetime has dropped from nearly four in the 1950s to less than two today. And that could present an entirely different threat to society as we know it. You have an economy that since the end of the Second World War has grown based on consumerism, what happens when all your consumers are old and they have everything they want? A lot of headlines about falling birth rates in the United States and elsewhere make it sound like a major disaster. That fewer babies spells doom for our future economy, and that an older population means fewer workers and fewer people paying into Social Security. I'm Jane Coaston, and to me, having kids is the result of individual choices and societal context. Do you want to have kids? And does it feel possible to have kids? That's why I'm interested in all the debates around declining birth rates. I wonder what's driving the choices families are making and how policymakers are thinking about changing them. And I'm wondering, should we be concerned about this? How concerned, or not, should we be? My guests today study population growth and shrinking and have different ideas on how worrisome falling birth rates are and what we should do about it. Lyman Stone is the director of research at the consulting firm Demographic Intelligence, a provider of U.S. birth and marriage forecasts. He is also an adjunct fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a public policy think tank in D.C. He thinks we should be concerned about a falling birth rate. Caroline Hartnett is a demographer and an associate professor of sociology at the University of South Carolina. And she thinks there are several reasons why we shouldn't be panicking about this. Falling birth rates and the idea of birth rates have been in the news for the past couple of weeks. I vaguely remember people being like, oh, there might be a pandemic baby boom, which, as I remember from the pandemic, didn't seem like that was going to happen because when you're racked with anxiety, maybe that doesn't seem like the right time for that. Yeah. This is a situation, I think, where demographers felt like they were screaming into the void. Yeah. Like, yeah. everyone was like, oh, maybe there'll be a baby boom. And we're like, you're crazy. Like, no. Yeah, no. no, that was definitely what it was. <laughs> I think there was like a piece where I was like, that's some wishful thinking. But first and foremost, Caroline, I know that you are less concerned about these issues than perhaps Lyman is. Yeah, so um, I think that there are several reasons not to be too worried 
when we say the total fertility rate for 2020 was 1.6 children per woman, it's kind of misleading, right? There's no group of women that's having 1.6 children. It's just a way of saying that there was a relatively low number of births for that year. We know that the recent decline in birth rates was particularly steep among the youngest women, and we still don't know to what extent those women are going to make up those births later. So, you know, one reason I think that we shouldn't be too worried is that the number 1.6 children sounds worse than it is. And, you know, it's sort of going to depend a lot on what happens in the future. A second reason I think not to be too worried about this is that we have a policy option that does work quite well to offset some of the potential consequences of a low birth rate, and that's immigration. So immigrants are new members of the population, so they raise population growth rates. People tend to move when they're young, so immigrants make the population age structure younger. The children that young immigrants bring to the U.S. or have when they're here also contribute to keeping the population young. And then the third reason that I think that this isn't a cause for kind of major anxiety is the fact that population dynamics evolve over a very long time scale, like over the course of many, many decades. So what the age structure and the growth rate look like in 2050 or 2100 is going to depend on what the birth rate, the death rate, and the migration rate looked like for like 80 years before that. So far, we've had a period of, you know, 10 plus years when our birth rate has declined. That in and of itself is not a kind of make or break fact for our future population dynamics. So what happens next matters. And it's possible that our birth rate will go up, turn a corner. It's possible that it'll kind of stabilize around where it is. It's possible that it will continue to go down. All of those scenarios are possible, and we've seen them happen in other countries. But no matter what happens, we still have a lot of warning before we get to a point where we have, you know, an older age structure or a shrinking population. Lyman, you've written on this issue, and you're definitely one of the people who thinks this is a big deal and who is more concerned about this. It seems to me that this is, in many respects, kind of the understandable after effects, aftershocks of industrialization, both the United States and elsewhere. Why are you more concerned about this? So a lot of the work that we do as demographers is kind of walking backwards into history. And so we we're kind of looking at what's already happened as we enter the future without really seeing it. What I'm interested in doing is attempting to turn around and actually look at that future. Unfortunately, immigration rates into the U.S. have been in decline for years, and fertility rates are falling everywhere. So in the future, what can we expect for immigration? We can expect continuing difficulty finding the levels of immigration that are necessary to offset low fertility rates. And we can expect episodic crackdowns on immigration as an increasingly anti-immigrant right is at least occasionally in power. Um, and I think that this is also what we're seeing in Europe as well. So on fertility, the same thing is true. Caroline's totally right that the total fertility rate is just sort of this like kind of made up indicator that we use for like, uh, here's how many babies somebody would have if everything was the same forever. And it is, it is totally made up. On the other hand, if you match up the total fertility rate that the country had when a woman was 25 to how many children she ends up having, it turns out it's really, really strongly predictive. And the reason to be to be concerned that this number is low, you know, we talk about labor force all the time. And like, yeah, that's interesting stuff. Economists like the labor force and politicians like the labor force. But the reality is most women say that they want somewhere between two and three kids. And if on average they're going to have 1.6, 1.7, 1.75, something like that, 
That means a rather large share of women not having the families that they want to have. And it'd be one thing if people were saying like, oh, I want a yacht. And oh, you didn't get a yacht. Well, no one's crying for you not having a yacht. But like having two children is a reasonable thing. So I think what we should say is that people have this desire that is prima facie reasonable, um, that it seems like in a, in a functioning and decent society, people would be able to achieve this. And yet, in practice, many are not. And so I'm concerned about that. I don't think we should get people worried and anxious about the kind of future their children are going to have if the birth rate is too low. I do think we should get people altruistically worked up in fertility being below what people want. So Mitt Romney's child allowance proposal. This is like the most credible proposal for like a a reconciliationable child allowance that we have, right? Why does he propose this? And why are there a few other Republican senators that even if they're like not on favor with exactly that proposal, they've got like a similar thing? Is it because they suddenly care way more about child poverty? No. It's because they care about the birth rate. Do I want everybody to be going around like, oh, the birth rate, I'm so anxious? No. But do I want to light a fire under the bum of policymakers to realize that this is a problem in a lot of people's lives, that this is going to lead to a lot of people not having the life they want and maybe having some some negative feelings about that that sometimes might come out on them as policymakers? Um, Yeah, I want them to know that. Um, And I want them to take action on that basis. My uh, reservation with that approach is a couple of things. One is that I'm not sure that it'll work all that well. So I I think that people, a lot of people have already in their heads that these policies don't increase the birth rates. And I also, I'm not sure that it's sort of worthwhile to make the, the birth rate is falling and that's really bad argument in order to get people on board with these spending bills. Yeah, because I, I really do think that there are real downsides to framing the falling birth rate as a crisis. This isn't just an American issue. And we've seen that in China, for instance, when the Chinese government does try to urge women to have more children now, women are saying like, but I I wanna do all these things that you said you wanted me to do, and now you don't want me to do these things? In a context in which, in the United States and elsewhere, working is so, and especially working through the childbearing years is so important. Yeah. So, you know, I think that when we are talking about what we call in demography, the fertility transition, where you, where societies go from having an average of six, seven, eight children down to three, two below that, that transition implies improving autonomy for women, greater empowerment. I think overall, that's sort of a a positive transition for women. But when we get down to these kind of lower levels of childbearing, like we're seeing in most wealthy countries, including the U.S. right now, I think that that's often not a function of greater empowerment. I agree with Lyman that most people would like children, and there are a lot of people who fall short of that, and that that is a kind of a failure of autonomy and empowerment. Um, I think that sort of embedded in the fertility trends that we're seeing, there are some people who are gaining more empowerment and more control over their fertility. Some fraction of the birth rate decline that we've seen in the last 10 plus years has been a decline in unintended pregnancy. So I think that 
kind of the trends that we're seeing recently are very much a mixed bag in terms of whether they reflect increasing control over our lives or decreasing control over our lives. Right. I wanted to ask, why are birth rates falling? There are many answers. That's what There's it sounds like. <laughs> There's a lot of answers. We, yeah. we wish we could be more scientific about this, yeah. but, you know, we go, well, over here it looks like this, and over there it's probably because of that. <laughs> so if I can just jump in on, you mentioned China, and there's a funny thing. So China's actually a great example of what I'm talking about, where low fertility can lead to a kind of strange world. So China's low birth rates are one of the many reasons that China's current more nationalistic leadership is concerned about the birth rates among minorities and the rising population share made up of minorities. So when we talk about low fertility and how societies actually respond to this, actually, we've used words like anxiety and worry and concern. And I really try to shy away from a lot of these words because I don't think you can you can anxiety somebody into having more kids. Um, Believe me, if you could, a lot of people's grandmothers would have already done, have, they've been trying. Right. But like the, the things that make people want to have kids are things like hope and aspiration and these things. It, but, but when you get these societies of anxiety, what you get is really adverse outcomes. And also in China's case, we see this funny thing where China's like, oh, we're encouraging you to have children. Well, no, they're removing fines for having children. And in the meantime, they're concerned about labor force dynamics. So what did they do? They raised the retirement age. And who provides most childcare in China? Grandparents. So this labor force concern actually results in a situation where uh, they want these young people to have kids and to try to get them to have more kids. They target the high fertility minorities for special uh, repression. And then they target the Han Chinese people and make them work longer years and have worse access to childcare. Because targeting labor force dynamics, you can do it by increasing fertility or by disciplining labor more intensely. And often that's what happens. And so we hear a lot about adapting to aging. And often it means by intensifying extraction from labor. And we see this all throughout East Asia, which is the countries that are most at the cutting edge of this. I think that for many people listening to this, who are perhaps slightly older than I am, they might remember that we used to be worried about a population bomb. We used to be very concerned that there were too many people. And there are still people who are apparently concerned that we have too many people. Personally, I think that occasionally that type of antinatalism always seems to be very concerned about certain people having too many children. And I don't like where that goes um, because it goes into an ugly, terrible eugenicist place. But has something changed? Because I think, Carolyn, you've mentioned, I believe, that birth rates have been falling. What happened between we're going to have too many people, population bomb, everyone starves, and we are going to have too few people, we're going to go further below replacement rate, everyone panic? So, you know, I think those fears were really kind of fomented in the 60s and 70s when we were in this period kind of worldwide where death rates had fallen and birth rates were sort of on their way down. But in that period, sort of in between where death rates fall and then birth rates fall, you get a population boom. Also, I think, you know, one thing that happened is that there was this fear that there was going to be 
widespread famine and things like that. And, you know, those were fears that were explicitly stoked by certain people who had an agenda. Who maybe wanted to write a book called The Population right. And maybe wanted to sell a lot of copies. <laughs> and then we had a, a green revolution. We were able to increase crop production. And even as population was increasing, there were all of these doomsday scenarios. They didn't pan out. It is very much the case, though, that there are a lot of people currently who are sort of still talking about this idea of, quote, overpopulation. And in these articles that have been written recently about the decline in fertility rates, generally framing that as a negative thing, the comment sections of these articles are filled with people saying, actually, birth rate declines are good. Actually, yes, uh, we have yes, too, we have too many people. We have too many right. people. It's bad. Right. And I think that I think that those arguments are, you know, as you said, dangerous. They head very quickly to a kind of eugenics and they're really just misguided. There's this idea that population is a major driver of climate change. That's not really the case. Right. Climate change is driven by the consumption in wealthy countries. It's driven by fossil fuel companies. It's driven by the set of incentives that we have under our political and economic system. Right. You know, a a large number of people on the earth are contributing very little to climate change. And one reason that I think it's actually not a good thing to get people worked up about this idea of a falling birth rate and to frame that as a crisis and say that it's really bad is because I think you sort of agitate people on the other side. You know, you sort of like turn up the heat on the conversation. And then you have one group saying falling birth rates are catastrophic right? They're leading us to this like horrible dystopia. And then, the you know, people on the other side screaming, no, we need to get rid of people. Like we're killing the earth. Populations are bad. So, you know, I, I would much rather just sort of turn down the temperature on these conversations generally. But I do think there's a crisis here. I do think that the current decline in birth rates we see in a lot of countries rich countries, but also a lot of low-income countries where fertility is considerably below what women say they want, that this is a crisis. Now, the other thing I would say is there are concerns about climate change and fertility, but empirically, you know, I run a survey of fertility preferences in the U.S. every couple months, and we ask women about their concerns about climate change and their fertility preferences. And women who are worried about climate change do not have different fertility preferences than other women. In fact, a lot of women report being worried about climate change because they have or anticipate having children. That is, their children will inherit it. Now, what we do see is women who are worried about overpopulation have different fertility preferences. But a lot of those women aren't worried about climate change. What I would say is that while overpopulation worries are real, I don't think there's a strong case to be made that there's a lot of people avoiding fertility because there's too much carbon. And to the extent that there is, I think that the obvious sort of like two birds with one stone thing here is is implement a carbon tax and use the revenues 100% to finance a child allowance. Just like straight up, carbon tax pays for child allowance, (laughs) goes straight back out. There, you get easing parenthood and you've dealt with a major driver of climate change. And I understand the perspective that maybe we need to turn down the temperature on this. And We're having a civil discussion between three civil people, none of us who like calling people names and saying rude things. So we probably all agree that it's good to turn down the temperature and and not, not say rude and inflammatory things and leave nasty comments. At the same time, if we desire policy change that supports family, that requires rhetoric that actually motivates people. 
So I think that actually gets into what I think is going to be the most interesting part of this conversation, what we should do about it, or if there is a thing to be done about it. And I want to ask you, Lyman, about the role that workism plays in here and how the American perspective on work plays in how people are having children. So as Caroline mentioned, there has been a a pretty sharp decline in unintended pregnancy in the U.S. in the last 10 or 15 years. That's, I would say, an unalloyed good. People avoiding pregnancies that that have really adverse impacts on their life is, is a great thing, especially since research suggests it's primarily happening through highly effective forms of contraception. But we also see declining fertility rates in other groups. So I did this paper looking at attitudes towards work where we find that in high-income countries, people who say that work is relatively more important tend to have fewer children. This fits with a lot of what we see in broader theories of fertility change that suggests that there's a values change that leads to a behavioral change. Um, And the argument that I and a co-author make is that a big part of it is people changing their source of meaning-making towards the workplace and the career. You really derive value from it. It's really what kind of makes you who you are. And that this shift, we think, is pretty significant and that it leads to lower fertility and that it leads to lower accomplishment even of desired fertility. Because when people face trade-offs, if they get a lot of meaning out of this other thing and they aren't sure how much meaning they'll really get out of a child even if they desire it, We think that this is one of the dynamics at play. Now, is it the only thing happening? No. Am I saying that women value their work too much and they need to stay home? No, not at all. Because in fact, what we found is that the effect is even more significant for men than it is for women. Um, (laughs) That men valuing their work a lot actually have a more negative effect than women valuing it a lot. So our argument is that basically to achieve the goals that individuals have and that many governments increasingly have on fertility, what you really need is labor policy. (laughs) What you really need is protection of workers and ability to have flexible and viable hours that are good for a family. James, this is Ron from the Bronx. Why don't we talk about legalization of drugs? Very, very important, timely conversation that we need to have. We really need to stop criminalizing drugs and stop locking people up for what they choose to put into their bodies. Anyway, I love the job you're doing. Keep up the good work, and I'm looking forward to next week. Hi, Ron. Thanks for calling. So when we're thinking about the legalization of drugs, I think that that's actually a really interesting conversation to be had because there's been a lot of talk about decriminalization, where a drug remains illegal but people who possess it aren't arrested for it. But legalization implies that there would be a taxation schedule set to a specific drug, that you would go to the store between the hours of 9 and 5 and be able to purchase the affirmation drug, which is a very different conversation from simply decriminalizing a substance. So I think that it's really important, and I'm glad, Ron, that you brought up legalization, because that's a step up from decriminalization. And I think that's a conversation we really need to have. What are you arguing about with your family, your friends, your frenemies? Tell me about the big debate you're having in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. And we might play an excerpt of it on a future episode.
Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress, from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Speaking as someone who's in this cohort, yes, you want to have children, but you want your children to be fed and happy. The cost of living is so expensive. And it just seems like it's not that you're spending it on avocado toast. You're spending it on trying to get to work every day. The work that you need to fund the children that you currently cannot afford to have. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that there are kind of a lot of things happening simultaneously, right? Stagnant wages. Young people today hold a smaller share of the country's wealth than previous generations of young people did. And then you also have a situation where I think employers used to provide certain supports to employees that kind of indirectly supported childbearing. So things like a reliable work schedule, low-cost health care, pensions. And those supports have gotten weaker over time. And there has not been anything really to kind of fully compensate for that loss. Yeah. I just keep thinking about the so-called success sequence of just like graduate from high school, get married, then you can have kids, then it'll all work out great. And it, it well, you know, sometimes things don't quite happen that way. Right. I mean, the, the sort of the transition to adulthood has gotten longer right. and more difficult. Right. Go ahead, Lyman. And, you know, it is true. If you if you do the success sequence in order, your odds of poverty are way lower and each yes. step of it is is probably beneficial. But each step of that ladder has gotten farther apart. Yes. (laughs) Um, It has gotten harder to climb that. I'm very sympathetic to the view that costs have changed in a way that's really prohibitive for families. But I do think there is an important caveat here. That is, if what you want is the life expectancy of someone in 1930... And what you want is the consumption basket of a person in 1930. And for your kids to have the same, you can probably afford to have much more children right now. Right. But um, I, I don't I don't want but, that. But, but I you don't, don't. I don't. Okay, so no, this is the thing. No. <laughs> is that what's going on is not just that things became more expensive. They did, but that isn't all that's happening. Subjective well-being has a strong relative yardstick. 
The same standard of living can cause a different amount of unhappiness and psychological discomfort depending on what the society around you has. And I'm not saying, oh, people nowadays just need to like toughen up and have the babies. I don't think you can do that. I think that welfare loss is a real thing. You cannot escape your society and your culture. It exists. And so one of the things happening is that you know, could you become Amish and have a lot of kids? Yes, the Amish do it. <laughs> but the subjective well-being loss that goes with opting out of the standard of living that is normative in your time can be very large. You know, we make fun of avocado toast. And it's like, obviously, no amount of avocado toast is going to pay for childcare. On the other hand, the share of meals that is eaten out has risen dramatically in the past 40 years. And the amount of money spent on it has too. And the amount of money, if you drop shares back to what they were 40 years ago, it ends up being a pretty significant share of a kid's college tuition. Now, is it all of it? No. But my point is, if you just choose to roll back the clock on modernity for your own household, it's possible. At the same time, you get to watch everyone else enjoying all these good things of modernity and say to yourself, oh, I guess I'm not getting that. We should not expect parents to bear excess welfare loss just because society got richer on the whole, on average. So, Lyman, I'm going to come to you again. Uh, American conservatives have been concerned about falling birth rates for a long time now. But the policies that were largely supported by if not American conservatives, American Republicans, were kind of the policies that got us here with the curtailing of the welfare state such as it existed, the idea that universal preschool or something is anathema to quote-unquote normal people. Is this the consequence of the policies that Republicans and people on the right have been supporting for a long time? And then they were like, oh, how did this happen? Yeah, to a considerable extent, yes. Now, I want to say it's it's not only that. Right. So, Nothing is um, ever only just one thing. So like, right. you take like the, the child care proposal under Nixon and Nixon ultimately says no, because this is going to irritate social conservatives. You could say, well, okay, so this was like social conservatives wrecking a social welfare scheme that could have boosted fertility. And on the face, you're correct. However, what's actually going on here is living in a diverse society makes it hard to do stuff. That is, living in a society where people want very, very different things means you have to think more about how to do things. So in, I live in Quebec, okay? In Quebec, we have all these nice things, you know, child allowances and child care and maternity leave and all that. And you know why? Because the government of Quebec will put your child in a French-language kindergarten and they will learn French. It doesn't matter if you speak Urdu. They will become Quebecois. There's not a tolerance for diversity. <laughs> if you live in a pluralist society where you're committed to making sure that every subculture gets to raise their children kind of the way they want, you're going to have to like do more than just throw a one-size-fits-all program out there. So yes, social conservatives, and particularly religious conservatives, as this sort of I am one, so I can say cranky subculture with love. We're kind of cranky and irascible on political things sometimes. Yes. As um, I remember, it, it was interesting to get in this conversation with social conservatives because I was like, but you were just telling people that they were having too much sex and too many children out of wedlock. If you're cranky, right. you're cranky. But at the same time, like turning around saying, well, we just wish we could write policy like social conservatives didn't exist is sort of telling on yourself, right? Like, 
What if instead we just said, okay, so social conservatives are going to oppose having a, a child care program that's hostile to their values or life mode, but we really want to have child care system. So what if we just did like a child care voucher that you could use anywhere you want or that you could use for yourself as a parent? Now, yes, Republicans have also torpedoed programs like that. So I'm, I'm right. this is why I would say that the Republican Party is very much to blame for some of this. However, in a lot of cases, what's going on there is that the social conservatives are like, ah, this sounds okay. And the economic conservatives are like, no, this will discourage work. This is terrible. Right. And we hold hands and we vote for the elephant. Because this is a global issue, it's happening in South Korea, parts of South America. We mentioned China. And to your point about policy efforts that are explicitly pro-natal, those in countries like Hungary, where they have decidedly said that this is to increase the birth rate, it hasn't really worked. And so what can government do? There are pretty large policy effects. There was actually a really nice review that just came out last year by some researchers associated with the Norwegian government that they reviewed highly empirical papers looking at different pronatal policy interventions, uh, and they found pretty consistent positive effects. But the scale of it to a demographer sounds very big, but to a policymaker doesn't always sound very big. With a pretty concerted effort, you can increase TFR or total fertility rate in a wealthy country by about 0.2 children per woman, which is in the U.S. It's like millions of babies over a decade. Some of the most effective ones are ones where Caroline and I very very plausibly might disagree, which is baby bonuses. That is a large lump sum cash transfer right at the time of birth. I think they're great. Uh, they're a harder political lift, though, because they don't have a lot of these other benefits that help build a coalition. And that's why I generally don't advocate for them in the U.S. Because to pass anything in the U.S., it's going to be five or six pronatal Republicans and a bunch of Democrats who care about child and maternal well-being, which means it's going to be child allowances and parental leave. And those are your real avenues forward. I think we do so little in the U.S. that there's so many opportunities <laughs> here, you know? I think we have a great opportunity to really throw a lot of things at the wall. I mean, that would be my preference. I think that there should be cash transfers starting in pregnancy. I would like to see a kind of national preschool program. One reason I think that that's appealing is that those programs are less susceptible to the changing political winds than, say, cash. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't do cash transfers. I think we should do cash transfers and some of this other stuff. I think student debt forgiveness slash reform would be useful. I think changing zoning laws around housing would be useful, allow for kind of more building in desirable areas. And honestly, I'm not that picky. Like, let's just do something. Let's do some things. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And I think that we should do them whether or not they're going to increase the birth rate. I think that any of those things would make the experience of parenting easier for people, less burdensome, and that that's reason enough. I think that this can easily become one of those issues where if you already think something, then you can spin the birth rate to be like, this is actually, there's a lot of context here. And I want to thank you both because I think this has been actually a very helpful conversation that has meant that I have raised my slightly concerned level up two notches on this issue. Oh, no. <laughs> I failed. Hey, oh, no, no, no. But hey, no, 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 no. It's okay. That went from like, I was at like a one and now I'm like three-ish, but like we have not yet gotten to like five. So 
We've all learned a lot. Lyman Stone <laughs> is the director of research at the consulting firm Demographic Intelligence, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a Novak Journalism Fellow, and a PhD student in population dynamics at McGill University. Caroline Hartnett is a demographer and an associate professor of sociology at the University of South Carolina. Go Gamecocks. Woo. Thank you both so much. <laughs> Thank you. It was great. Thank you. did some research into declining birth rates in the U.S. and abroad. Here's what I found. Want more babies? Make the U.S. more livable. By Ramesh Ponaru and Bloomberg, published May 2021. But the other side, you can read Why We Shouldn't Worry About Falling Birth Rates by Leslie Root in the Washington Post, published in June 2021. And listen to an episode on the New York Times podcast, The Daily, titled A Population Slowdown in the United States, published May 2021. Finally, Listen to my colleague Ezra Klein's interview with psychologist Allison Gopnik on what adults can learn from children on The Ezra Klein Show. You can find links to all of these in our episode notes. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Elisa Gutierrez, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Allison Brujek and Paula Schumann. With original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Additional mixing by Carol Savarol. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. And audience strategy by Shannon Busta. 